The following audio has been brought to you by Word of Grace Community Church. For more information about Word of Grace, visit wogcc.com. Well, whether you are here in the main auditorium or whether you're joining us in the commons area or whether you're watching online, I am glad you're here and I hope that you are ready to receive truth from Scripture. We're kicking off a brand new series this morning called Altars and Idols, where we're going to deal with finding freedom from sin by redirecting our hearts to worship God. And I hope none of you have any statues in your house that you're praying to or worshiping, because that's really not the type of idol worship that we're talking about necessarily, where there's a graven image or there's some sort of statue. No, we're instead talking more about the idols of the heart. Even though idols can't audibly speak, they still have a very loud voice. They have a loud influence in our lives. And idols have one method and one goal, and that's really all they have. They have one method and they have one goal. Their method is that they lie. That's what they do. Idols lie and their goal is simple. So you will worship that thing or that thing that you think you have to have. So idols lie, so we will worship them. That's what they do. And even though this tactic This goal, even though it's so clear, why do we still fall for it? I'll tell you why. Because it's simple. We were created to worship. Every one of us. We were created to worship. That's why God created us to worship Him for His glory. We will worship someone or something. It's just who we are. And we do that by dedicating our lives or our affections or our focus to that sole purpose. People worship money. They'll worship sex, worship pleasure, status, they'll worship the American dream, and we obsess over these things to the point that we're willing to sacrifice for it, and we feel that we're incomplete without it. We feel that we have to have this thing, or we have to have achieved this before we will really matter, or before we'll find true significance, happiness, peace, contentment, whatever it is, and we'll do whatever it takes. Because that idol is lying and whispering in our ear, telling us that if we could just possess what it promises that it can deliver on, that we will truly have the thing that we desire. The problem is that all of these things that idols do is that they lie about what they can really provide. Alcohol lies by giving promises of a good time, an escape, a removal of bad feelings or a removal of thoughts or experiences Maybe a cure for loneliness or a way out of your sorrows, but does it deliver on any of those promises that it makes? No, it doesn't. It lies to get you to bow down and worship. Illegal drugs do the same thing. Prescription drugs will do the same thing. Food does the same thing. Pornography does the same thing. That new car does the same thing. That new spouse, the new house, the new credit card, they're all just idols that we are looking for to do something. And they lie to us and say, if you'll just commit to worship, then they'll promise, man, I'll give you what you really want. But here's the thing about those idols. They lie and they have no power to deliver the thing they promise. And the enemy uses these things. The enemy uses all these different vices in our lives to whisper something in our ears saying that we are somehow uh, insufficient with what we really need to be happy. And we think that if we just had that, then we could really do what we felt that God had put in our heart to do. 
we always tell God, I would do this for you if this situation were different. If I had more money, right? Or if I had more time. Or, you know, if, if I weren't in this current situation, I could really do more for you, God. Even though we know we were created to worship Him, we know we were created to be committed to Him and to put Him first in all things, but we tell God, if you'll just wait, if you'll just hang on, or if you'll just do this thing for me, if you'll let me win the lotto, oh God, man, I'll bless you. I'll fund everything the church needs funded. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll, I'll feed all the children in the world. And we think that if we could just have this one thing happen, then all of our problems would go away. And that's what the idol does. It, it whispers. It says, I'm what you need, but it has no power to deliver on what it promises because it lies, because it wants you to worship it. It wants your affections. It wants your heart. It wants your desires. And so it promises the moon, but it cannot deliver anything at all. So let's go and let's look at scripture. Let's look at one of the most infamous incidents concerning idols in the Bible. So if you have your Bible, you can go to Exodus chapter 32, and we're going to look. And if you've been around church very long, you may be familiar with this story. Or if you've watched Charlton Heston's Ten Commandments, uh, you, may have, uh, you may have seen uh, this acted out in that movie. Because the setup for Exodus 32 is there's this guy named Moses. And he has effectively led the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, out of slavery. They've been in bondage for some 400 years, literally generations born into slavery, and it's all they know. Generations born into slavery, working for the Egyptians, most likely building the pyramids, and doing all sorts of different slave labor that you see these Hebrews doing. And out of all of this time, God lets his people go through using a man named Moses and you see the, there were various plagues that were brought upon the Egyptians and all this stuff that happened. And finally, the Pharaoh says, okay, Moses, take your people, let them go. And they come to a crossroads where, where they're, they're facing the Red Sea. And that's the obstacle that's in their way. And God tells Moses to stretch out a staff and the waters part because Pharaoh's army was chasing them because Pharaoh had changed his mind. And he wanted to go and get these people back and put them back into bondage. And so you're talking about, most scholars say, over a million people. This wasn't like a group of 20 buddies, all right? This is a million people, most scholars say, crossing over the Red Sea as it parts. They walk across on dry ground, and then Pharaoh's army tries to pursue and follow. And as Pharaoh's army gets in between the water that's standing up, it comes down on them and drowns. Pharaoh's army. And these people had just seen the hand of God move through the plagues, through delivering them, through leading them, through rescuing them. And you would think they would want to dedicate their entire lives to God, right? Because of how huge God had been and how much God had blessed them. They, God, you've delivered me. You've done everything for me. You've blown me away with how you've come and delivered me out of this bondage. And now I can live free. And you would think that these people would want to just give everything to God. But we find something interesting happen just about a month and a half after God had done all these amazing things. Let's look at Exodus chapter 32 and verse 1. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, who was the number two guy in charge, and they said to him, up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Stop right there. 
You see what's happening? These people have just seen God move in a powerful way, but then God calls Moses to go up this mountain. That's where Moses received the Ten Commandments, and he was alone with God, and there's this huge, huge cloud of smoke that's over the mountain, and the people don't know if Moses is still alive or not. He couldn't, like, give them a text or anything. They're like, this Moses, we don't know if he's alive or not. He's been gone longer than we thought he was going to be gone. And so they go to Aaron, and they say, hey, we got to worship something. We don't know what has become of Moses. Verse 3, so all the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day, and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That word play there is translated in a sexual connotation. So they were, they were having a lewd sex acts as a part of their worship to this newly formed golden calf. How extreme of a change is this? from seeing God who had delivered them out of a terrible situation. And now they're looking for something else a month and a half later because they haven't heard back from Moses, the guy that led them. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf. They've worshipped it. They've sacrificed to it and said... Um, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a na great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord as God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them? from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken about bringing on his people. Man, as I look at this powerful story, I see the same tendencies that we can often have. Because has God done so much for us that we should be blown away? Just like the children of Israel, we who were rescued out of this pathway that was leading us to death, this path of sin, and he has brought us in to have new life now because of Jesus and what Jesus did. Should not we be blown away and just want to serve him and worship him alone? But yet, just as the children of Israel, their heart was drawn towards something else, and it began to worship idols and want and crave something other than the one who had actually delivered them, the one who actually deserved their worship, the one who actually had done the deed that had set them free. Shouldn't that have compelled us to worship him? And that's why I think that we have to be careful and not mislead ourselves when we think, oh God, if you would just do this for me, then I would worship and serve you forever. Because there's that selfish, fleshly tendency to go right back to self and to do what self wants to do. And the story's always bothered me a little bit. 
because I wonder why on earth would they go right back to idol worship? And, and I don't know exactly why because scripture doesn't spell it out, but I think that the enemy uses idols in our lives to do the same thing that happened with the children of Israel. And that's that the enemy uses idols to get us to question the goodness of God. The, idol uses, the, the enemy uses those idols to get us to question whether God really is good or not. And, and I, I really think that that's where this whole idea of worshiping a golden calf came from. Because Moses was delayed coming down the mountain and the people were afraid. And they began to doubt if God was really good. If it really was this God that saved us, because maybe he's dead. Maybe Moses couldn't even make it. So if Moses died, then let's worship something more familiar. They wanted something crafted that they had seen before or something that felt more familiar. Whether the calf represented something they had seen worshipped in Egypt that maybe they had, they had seen the Egyptians worship. Or maybe it was just something else that they had crafted for their own, their own means. It was something that they desired because they wanted to worship, and they knew that they wanted to worship because they knew that all this had just happened, but their heart was being misdirected and misled. And they thought this was the way to get to do the things that they thought they should do and the things that they wanted to do. They wanted something more comfortable, more familiar. And I believe that they wanted to direct their worship towards something more familiar out of fear that maybe they might end up dead like Moses if they didn't worship something. And fear will lead you to question the goodness of God, and it will open you up to sin. It's the same tactic that the enemy used in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. When the serpent came and spoke to Eve, what did he tell her? He framed the question in a way that he got her to question, to wonder if God really was good. Because had God given Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden everything they needed? Absolutely. God didn't withhold anything that was good for them. But the enemy came and he whispered in Eve's ear and he says, but you're not going to die if you eat this fruit. You're only going to become more like God. Your eyes are actually going to be open and you're going to know good from evil. You're, you're actually being shortchanged by God. He's actually holding out on you. And Eve began to doubt whether or not God was really good. That God really had given them everything they needed. Because there's something else that God's holding out. And I really need this extra thing. And if I have this extra thing, then I'll be fulfilled. Then I'll be content. Could you imagine the first two people on the planet seeing the, the, the amazing creation that God had made, but yet their hearts were still drawn away by believing the lie that there's something else, that God was not really that good. He was good, and they believed that up until a point. But then there was something else. And it's the same thing that happens to us in our lives. We believe that God is good and then something happens that we can't control. Something happens, maybe we get some unexpected news that was bad and we don't know where to run. So instead of running towards God and worshiping Him and trusting that He's good, we go, oh, I want to run over here to this because this is going to help me to cope. This is going to help me to find joy. This will help me to ease the pain. When God said, I alone am the source. Will you put me first and everything else in your life will be taken care of? But we don't trust that because the idol says, you really need to worship me. 
The idol whispers in our ear and says, you're not getting that peace from God. You're, you're unhappy because you're struggling financially. You, you really need to go after this. And if you make this much money and you have this parking space and you have this title, then, then after all of that, then you can really get back to worshiping God. And, and why don't you just, you, you instead, why don't you pursue that and push God to the side so you can get this thing that you really ultimately need? Maybe the enemy will whisper in your ear and say that you, you need to pursue the way that that coworker makes you feel, that new coworker. You're, you and your wife may be having problems, but she, she gets you. She understands you. And you're able to talk to her, you, not li- unlike you're able to talk to your, your, your wife. And you begin to pursue that relationship and go, I'm getting something from her that, that, that I'm not getting at home, so therefore I must need more of this. And that's how affairs happen. Because someone whispered into someone's ear and said, what you need is over here. You don't have what you really need. People sacrifice their families to buy this car and to be able to make this much money so they can have this sort of house or this sort of lifestyle. People will run to drugs, both illegal and perfectly legal, to look for some sort of method to cope. People look towards alcohol or pornography. People may even use food as a coping mechanism to try to somehow, this makes me feel good. This is something I can control, something that makes me feel good for just a moment. And the idol keeps whispering, yeah, you need more. You need more. You need more. This is going to solve it. This is going to make you feel good. This is what you've been looking for. And it can't deliver on what it promises. Because that fear has caused us to doubt the goodness of God. It's caused us to doubt that God really is everything that I need and that if I had Jesus and nothing else, that I could truly be happy and content, that he really is everything, that the world could take everything away from me. And if I still had Jesus, I could still have joy and peace and I could still be content. And because we don't believe that he really is as good as he says he is, often we'll be led into that idolatry, just like Adam and Eve, just like the Israelites. And I believe it's based out of that fear and believing that lie that we're somehow missing something. We're missing out. Doubt and fear cause us to be more susceptible to look for answers outside of God because at the core, idols get us to doubt that he really is good. We sing a song in our praise and worship here at church that's always kind of bothered me. But I can understand the context of it. And so I want to explain it to you so that you can better understand the context of it as well. There's a song called King of My Heart. It's an amazing song. But there's this one part of the song that we sing, and it says, You're never going to let, you're never going to let me down. And that part's always bothered me. Because it is true if you look at it through the lens of God, saying that God in his perfect uh, will is going to never truly let us down because he cannot disappoint because he's God. But if it's me looking through the lens of my personal expectations, he's absolutely going to let me down because God is not going to do what I want him to do when I want him to do it. That's just not how he works. So we joke around on the worship team when we'll be practicing that song sometimes. We'll say things like, you're never going to let me down, except when it comes to my expectations, if I'm not in line with your will and what you really want, Lord. We'll do things like that when we practice to kind of, you know, temper that. But it is true in the sense of God is never going to let you down according to his perfect plan and his perfect will. But according to your expectations, yeah, 
He's going to disappoint you if you put your expectations and your will above his will. He'll disappoint you every time because God is not subject to us humans, is he? And so we don't get to command and control God and tell him where to go, how to do it, when to do it. No, our job is to trust. And we're supposed to rest and trust that he is good. And that's easier said than done because sometimes you can doubt the goodness of God when things aren't going your way. When there may be a challenge that you're facing and you're still supposed to go, yes, you're never going to let me down. Yeah, I got to trust and know that he's still good. And that according to his will, he's never going to let me down. Isn't that the way Jesus taught us to pray anyways? He said, let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in my life as it is in heaven. And I'm supposed to trust you. And I'm supposed to trust that you're good and that you're in this for your glory and that you care about me and you want to see me also trust in you and be able to rest and experience the peace that can come from knowing Jesus. And so in that sense, yeah, he's never, he's never going to let us down. But if it's our expectations, man, we, and here's what we do. We, 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 try to, we try to create these different formulas to get God to do things our way. If I just do step one here, step two there, step three there, if I come to church this many times, pray this many times, give this much in the offering, and I serve this often, then if I pray, then God's going to do whatever I want him to do whenever I want him to do it. And we think that there's like this formula to try to get God in our debt somehow. And folks, we can't get God in our debt. As a matter of fact, Jesus paid the debt that we owed that we could never pay in and of ourselves. Amen? And that's the good news of the gospel is that it's not because of me, but rather it's in spite of me that Jesus' goodness is so overwhelming that I should be able to trust him regardless of what I'm facing, regardless of what season of life I may be in, regardless of whether things play out the way that I hope and think it does in my mind. And i got to be able to trust that he's good because if I can trust that he's good, I'm going to be less likely to be, to be swept away by this idolatry that can often happen in our lives. But I'm going to be more susceptible and more open to idol worship, to believing the whispers that what you really need is over here, that God's holding out on you, that you're not really getting that thing that you thought you should have when you should have it. And it can become an idol. And we go, God, are you really good? Same thing happened to the children of Israel. Same thing happened to Adam and Eve. There's something else. No, no, no. We have to believe that Jesus is all-sufficient, that he's preeminent. That means there's nothing better than Jesus. Amen? Like, seriously, nothing better than Jesus. I love it. I can't remember which preacher says it, but he says, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Literally, Jesus plus nothing else. It's not Jesus plus a new house equals everything and happiness and joy and peace. It's not Jesus plus that promotion. It's not Jesus plus... All these things that we can pursue and chase after. No, it's Jesus and nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything I need. And it still enables me to confidently say, Lord, you are good. You are good. And my heart is positioned to worship you, to serve you. Not when it's convenient. Not when I have margin in my life. But every single day. My wife challenged me. Just yesterday, we were talking about generosity, and I always love it when my wife challenges me. Those are my favorite (laughs) conversations. She challenged me 
by talking about when we may go to different um, events or fundraisers or things like that. There have been times where we've attended those things and where we've said, oh man, I, I wish we would have planned better and had more margin to be able to give you know, something significant. And my wife said, why, why have we done that in the past? She said, what if all we could give was five bucks? Why didn't we do that? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, wouldn't it be better if we said we wanted to give and God put it in our hearts to give? Instead of saying, God, when this happens, I'll do it. Why shouldn't I do it now where I'm at? And I was like, oh, thanks for that. <laughs> I thought she's exactly right. Because it's not about an amount. It's not about an amount of your time. It's not about an amount of your ability or amount of your finances. If God puts something on your heart, what can you say yes to now? What should you be saying yes to now? What is God requiring of you? What is God asking you? Not God, I'll do this when. I'll do this when I'm not working so much. Isn't it amazing that no matter how much we work, we always find time for the Packers. We always find time to eat. We always find time. And we say, oh, I pray. I'll pray if I had more time. I'm too busy. And we make all these excuses. But we find time to do all these other things. And we make things a lot harder than they should be. And we think that unless we can devote a significant amount of time or a significant amount of finances or a significant amount of personal resources to some endeavor that God is putting on our heart that we just can't do it. Oh, God, I'll do it when. I'll do it when this happens. No, it, if it's worship, it needs to be regular. It needs to be sacrificial. It needs to be me being obedient with whatever I have, saying, yes, Lord, everything I have is yours. Everything that I have is yours. And I don't want to question your goodness. I want to say you're good, and I want to worship you by giving you every part of my life. I love the story that I heard about a friend of mine who had felt called to be a pastor. And this guy had never been given the opportunity to be in pastoral ministry so far as teaching a congregation, shepherding a congregation, or being uh, you know, employed by a local congregation. He never had that opportunity, but the opportunities that he kept getting were in managerial positions in fast food restaurants. And he felt like that God had put something in his heart to pursue and do that he was called to do. But he felt like God wasn't opening the door because it seemed like every time that he would have an opportunity to go into pastoral ministry to be a, you know, a, a pastor, he felt that he, those doors were being closed and he was confused by this. And he said one day he was working at Taco Bell and he said he was having a particularly bad day and he was being really angry because all the young people that were working, they were, they, were, they were showing up late or they weren't doing their job efficiently and they were getting frust he was getting frustrated and he said, Lord, I know you've called me to be a pastor. And the Lord spoke to his heart in that moment and said, who cares if I called you to pastor Taco Bell? And God just dropped that on his heart like a ton of bricks going, oh, I've been missing it this whole time. It's not about having a pulpit. It's not about having a, a congregation or a church that your name is on the bulletin or whatever, where you're the pastor. It's about if I've called you to do this, what can you do in the context of where you are now? That's worship. Amen, somebody? Amen. Saying yes, where I'm at right now. And, and yeah, eventually later on in life, God did open that door for him, but he had to have his heart set in the right tone to be able to do what God had told him to do right then. That's worship, living your life as a sacrifice to God with everything, not just chasing after, if I have this, then I'll be this. No, what is God telling you to do now? You see, the gospel turns our hearts to worship God because it is the truth that sets us free. It's the gospel that reminds me that God is good whether I get my way 
how I want it, when I want it, or not. The gospel reminds me that only God is worthy of worship. The gospel reminds me of my position in the eyes of God in Christ and my position in the eyes of God without Christ. So keep that truth in front of your eyes and remind yourself of your need of Jesus because it humbles your heart and it helps you to fix your eyes on Jesus. I love Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, church, Jesus loves you. Jesus forgives you. Jesus wants your worship. And when your heart truly worships Jesus out of a response of gratefulness for who he is and what he's done for you, you fix your eyes on him. You fix your eyes on his word. And then we can truly understand what it means to walk in victory when we see in Scripture where it says that we'll know the truth and the truth will set us free because that truth has become a reality in my life because my eyes are fixed on Jesus. Yeah, there's distractions that come. Yeah, there's heartache that comes. Yeah, there's tough stuff that we're going to walk through. And there's going to be idols that are going to come along and present themselves as the answer all the way. They're going to say, oh, if you just had me, If you just worship me, if you just follow me, if you just desire me and set all of your affections on me and you actually get me, then I'm going to give you everything that you've been looking for. And folks, can I tell you today that that's a lie? The only one who can bring you true contentment and true peace and true joy and true fulfillment is Jesus Christ. That's it. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So the next time that you hear that whisper of that serpent that would want to draw you away to worship an idol, whether it be pornography, whether it be alcohol, whether it be some sort of uh, substance, whether it be that thing you're pursuing that's in your heart that's got you all captivated and that you you just love and you're, you're sacrificing for and pursuing and chasing after, it can't be above God. You'll have no other gods before me. There's nothing else we should be pursuing more than him. Amen, somebody? There's nothing else we should be seeking after more than his will, his way, pursuing what he wants for our lives, getting to know him more, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And sometimes we need help doing this because we struggle. And we can't fix our eyes on Jesus sometimes by ourselves because we get distracted. That's what church community is for. That's what church family is for. That's why you're surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just so you can have someone sitting here in the room with you, no, but so you can get to know one another and invest in community so that you can be sharpened by one another. Just as scripture says, as iron sharpens iron, so does one man's countenance sharpen another. It's essential that you get connected in Christ-centered community, that you get connected in this local body so you can be sharpened, so you can be challenged, so you can can say, hey, I need help fixing my eyes on Jesus right now because I've been worshiping this idol over here. It's been lying to me and it hasn't been paying out and I know it's a lie, but I need help fixing my eyes on Jesus. Sometimes our spouse can help us fix our eyes on Jesus. Sometimes a fellow brother or sister in Christ 
can help us fix our eyes on Jesus. Sometimes it's just you and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God helping you fix your eyes on Jesus. But we need to fix our eyes on Him, the author and the finisher of our faith, because He's the only one worthy of our worship, not any idol that would want to lie with all these false promises. It's all about Jesus, and He loves us, and He wants us to walk in freedom. And my prayer is that today, that through this message, that maybe you've identified some idols. You say, what do I do next, Pastor? I've been, I've been seeing this since you've been talking about this, and I know I have things that I've been setting my affections on, things I've been putting priority on over pursuing Jesus. This message is not one to bring condemnation. No, maybe it will bring some healthy conviction, though. Conviction of sin, saying there is sin there. Because idol worship is sin, there's no way around it. And so how are we supposed to deal with sin when we see it for what it is? Well, first of all, I think you need to call it what it is and admit it. Say, Lord, I've been sinning. I I haven't been worshiping you. I haven't been prioritizing you. I've been prioritizing these other things, entertainment. I've been prioritizing entertainment or, or, or maybe certain relationships over you. I've been, I've been prioritizing seeking after this thing or this achievement. I've been more focused on my retirement than I have been you, Lord. I've been more focused on, on, on this, this, this part of my life. And it may be an important part of your life. And there may be nothing wrong with focusing on those things. But if it's come before him and it's become an idol, then it's sin. I don't care what it is because you have no other gods before him. Lord, forgive me for doubting in your goodness. Forgive me for doubting that I, that, that I needed something else besides you to find real joy and peace and contentment. And if that's you, call it what it is and say, Lord, help me to put those things in the right place. Or if it's just straight up sin and it's got a grip on you, Lord, help me to get rid of it and help me to fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith, and show me what I need to do next. God, if I need to confess that sin to my spouse... I need to confess that sin to a fellow brother or sister in Christ, and I need to ask for help. Lord, help me to do that. If I need someone to hold me accountable, help me to take that step. Help me to have the courage to do that. Maybe that's your next step today. I don't know what God is putting in your heart to do. I'm not going to try to ascertain or discern that, but I do know that the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart today because that thing that is nudging you to do something about what you've heard today, that's the Holy Spirit of God and you need to be obedient because he's nudging you. He's he's gently nudging you. Whatever it is that he's confronting you with, he's doing it for your good and for the glory of God and for you to live the life that God has called you to live and for you to walk in the type of freedom over sin that Jesus bought and paid for you to walk over. Because God did not create you to be in bondage to sin any longer. But he has set you free. Amen? So let's walk and let's live in that type of freedom by renewing our minds, by changing those values, by really being in awe of Jesus and fixing our eyes on him and worshiping him instead of idols that lie to try to get us to worship them. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this opportunity to share your word with our church family. I pray, Father, that you help us all to walk in that type of freedom, real freedom, not just theoretical freedom, but actual real tangible freedom, freedom from addiction, freedom from sin, freedom from misprioritization, freedom from idol worship, freedom from doubting that you truly are good, but let us trust that you are good. 
And let us rest in that fact. Thank you, Jesus, that you remind us of your goodness as we contemplate the gospel, as we remind ourselves of our need and of you being the solution to that need. I pray you help people to rest. I pray you help people to find comfort. And I pray you help people find repentance and freedom from sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Word of Grace. For more sermons or any other information, visit wogcc.com.